from KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. Bay Area sports writer Joan Ryan covered the San Francisco Giants for decades and eventually became a media consultant for the team. Along the way, she became fascinated by the notion of team chemistry and how it related to what she calls a junk drawer jumble of a team, other sports teams, and even office and family dynamics. Her new book is called Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and Soul of Team Chemistry. It's a result of years of research, interviews, and consultation with neuroscientists and psychologists to figure out if it exists, and if so, what is it, and how can it work in your favor? Joan Ryan joins us to talk about the book and the importance of sports in a pandemic. That's all next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. After following the notoriously hostile relationship between baseball icons Barry Bonds and Jeff Kent, as well as the meteoric path of the Giants, Bay Area-based sports writer Joan Ryan grew curious about team chemistry and how it affects performance. She spent close to 10 years probing sociology, neuroscience, and psychology to answer questions about whether team chemistry was real, and if so, what is it exactly, and how do you measure it? Joan Ryan joins us now to talk about the importance of sports during the pandemic, how our relationships with friends, colleagues, and family are affected by team dynamics, and her new book, Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and Soul of Team Chemistry. And welcome, Joan Ryan. Thanks, Michael. Great to be here. How are you doing? Uh, I'm okay, you know, like the rest of us in the pandemic, uh, plodding on and uh, remembering, actually, a number of years ago when we were on the air together and you were talking about going over the wall and not just being a sports columnist or a sports reporter. Little did you know, probably you'd be writing about brain science and mere <laughs> neurons and oxytocin and rhesus monkeys, but that's what you've done in this new book. Where did this all begin? Let's go back to where this all began for you. In 1989, the Giants meeting in a reunion in 2009, that's what led to this book, really? That's right. You know, and, and of course, over the years as a sports writer, you know, what I loved most about covering sports was the relationships, right? You know, I mean, I just loved watching how these teams and, and how these men and, and mostly what I was covering were men's teams and especially baseball, you know, how they connected to each other. And I just love watching all of that unfold. And so in, in uh, 2009, you're right, I walked into this huge tent erected out into the, uh, in the um, baseball, the Giants stadium, I guess it was AT&T Park at that time, I think, um, out in the parking lot. And it was a reunion of that 1989 team that won the National League pennant and, you know, played the A's in the World Series, which we know now as the Earthquake World Series. And the Giants were swept, but, but that really didn't matter. Those guys, I'm walking through that tent and listening to just these snippets of conversation. And of course, I covered that team. I loved that team. And so I'm catching up with guys too. And I'm looking in their eyes and hearing it in their voices that just as in 89, what I saw, they still loved each other. And two words kept coming up in their conversations, team chemistry. They said, oh, this was the best team chemistry team we'd ever been on, blah, 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 blah. So I'm driving home and, you know, I've used those two words all the time too. And I thought about like, 
Well, what is it? You know, it's not about, well, we all have beards and we have these, you know, crazy handshakes and we go out to dinner together. I mean, it's clearly much, much deeper than that. So that kind of gripped me <laughs> for the next 10 years just to figure out, well, you know, and this was the time of Moneyball and analytics. And, you know, as Bruce Bochy, you know, called them in the front office, the propeller heads, all these MIT and Harvard analytics uh, math guys. And, um, and team chemistry was sort of dismissed as almost this voodoo, you know, this sort of myth we make up in retrospect when, under, when underdogs win. So that's what set me on this path, Michael. And it turned out to be just so much more interesting than I, than I ever thought it would be. Well, you made it interesting for me as a reader. In fact, um, there are a lot of naysayers about team chemistry. One of the most interesting ones in your book, and you did a, about 160 interviews uh, and read a lot of books and kudos for all the work and research that went into this. But uh, when you talk, for example, to uh, uh, the former uh, manager of the Detroit Tigers, uh, Jim Leyland, uh, he said, well, chemistry, that's something you learn in school. That doesn't mean anything, right? doesn't mean uh, I'll leave out the expletive here. Then he went on to talk about all these good veteran players and how they affected the team and the team worked together and so forth. So you have a real sense in your book that it's real. There's no doubt about it, even with the naysayers saying it's not so real. That's right. And and so now, you know, when I talk to people and I hear people and I fall into it too sometimes that you know, oh, I believe in team chemistry. And I think, no, you're recognizing, you're acknowledging <laughs> team chemistry. You know, whether you believe in it or not has no bearing on whether it exists. It does exist. It's just a matter of whether you acknowledge that it exists. And, and I just find it so puzzling that, uh, you know, guys like Michael Lewis and, and, and other analytics people who are super smart and super curious that, you know, and I have this in the book that, you know, Michael, I was interviewing Michael Lewis on stage for the Marin series and um, in the East Bay and, and um, South Bay for four nights in a row. And in the first night we were together in the green room and I adore Michael Lewis. I mean, I will buy every book that man ever writes. And I, to break the ice, I mentioned, oh, you know, we have a mutual friend and it's uh, Dacre Keltner, who's a, one of the neuroscientists that I was spending a lot of time with at UC Berkeley. And he said, well, what are you doing with, uh, with Dacre? And I said, well, you know, he's, he's doing some research um, for a book that I'm, I'm writing. What's your book about? Team chemistry. It doesn't exist, he said promptly. <laughs> and that was the end of that conversation. And so I was just so puzzled by why he and so many others who are just so all about analytics aren't open-minded to say that analytics and team chemistry can coexist. And team chemistry, while it can't be quantified now with any yardstick we now have, it is grounded in very clear well-proven science. Isn't it though uh, probably axiomatic that a lot of the reason you get that kind of naysaying from people like Lewis is you got these teams that love each other and they're close and they're bonding and everything else. I'm thinking about the 2007 Washington Nationals, particularly great camaraderie. And yet, uh, as you point out in your book, uh, not the talent to win. So there are so many who say, no, talent matters over so-called chemistry. It's biology, as The Onion, I think, put it, as you pointed out. Yes, and, and 
And of course, I mean, team chemistry doesn't invent talent. What team chemistry does um, through a, a lot of different uh, avenues is that it elevates performance. So a team that has very little talent still might not win and is probably not going to win, but their performance improves. And if, they're if their performance does not improve, it means they don't have team chemistry. And so what I'm saying is that team chemistry is not the same as camaraderie. It's not even the same as cohesion. There's plenty of teams that have no cohesion and no camaraderie who still perform brilliantly because their team chemistry is just on the field. They don't have that social, emotional team chemistry that we all assume, and that certainly I did. I thought that it was about going out to dinner and that they bonded that way. No, the going out to dinner was the evidence that they already had team chemistry. And well, so you see it, for team... example, as you point out, in, uh, and, and a lot of people come through in your book, Tony, uh, baseball fans will recognize many of the names. Jake Peavy, for example, who gives 100%, but says his teammates really make the difference. And then you talk to Tony La Russa, a former A's manager and St. Louis Cardinals manager, who has a lot to say about it as well in terms of respect and the kind of ties that bind people and so forth. Let's get into the science, though, because that's really, I was talking about mirror neurons and you bringing up Harry Harlow. And actually, you even get into uh, local psychiatrist Thomas Lewis has written a book on love, a very good book, which uh, we featured on Forum a number of years ago. This uh, gets us into the way people communicate and the way they need to touch and react to each other and eyes and so forth, all the things that we're missing in this pandemic to a great degree. You know, it, I've been thinking so much about that, people working remotely, because, you know, as you allude to, you know, we are tribal creatures. We're, we are what Thomas Lewis calls open loop creatures, meaning that we are completed by each other. We're completed from the outside in. And over 3 million years of evolution has brought us to this point where, you know, we have the largest brains in proportion to our bodies of any creature on earth. And our brains kept growing, not so much to accommodate all this intellectual wiring, but all the social wiring. And that was our survival technique, right? We had to we had to connect to each other and band together in order to survive. So today we are savants at reading other people. You know, any fleeting twitch of a facial muscle, our brains take in and process everything from, you know, our, our eyes, our tone of voice, even our odor, <laughs> you know, our body our brains take in all of this uh, input and then we are recalculating, recalibrating our own facial mus muscles and tone of voice in response. So there's this constant dance of signaling and communicating that we are going through every minute of every day. And that is really the foundation of team chemistry. And Michael, you know, as you read in the book, that it's not just you know all of those surface um, changes that we bring out in each other, but we affect each other's heart rate, hormone, blood flow. All of those things go into how profoundly we influence each other's physiology, mood, psychology, 
almost everything about us is contagious. Well, you even uh, bring our attention to some of the more popular culture elements of this team spirit when you see in Braveheart or Bad News Bears or things like the Magnificent <laughs> Seven uh, or Hoosiers. I was thinking about damn Yankees, too, because baseball is where you center a lot of your attention. And uh, you got to have heart was the theme song <laughs> of that. You really do bring us into the whole sense of how we interact, heart, head, our cerebral, our visceral, you know, all of the responses with eyes, even you said the olfactory, the way we smell each other. And when you talk about sports, you're talking also about this phenomenon in American sports where the men who generally don't necessarily show affection, openly show affection. I mean, there's hugging, there's kissing, there's touching, there's, you know, high-fiving, uh, patting on the rear, all that sort of thing. Uh, some think that this is homoeroticism. I think it's maybe more just the pack animals in us and the hunter-gatherers in us, as you point out. So there's really a sense that you come to that we are by natural disposition people who have to work together and have to ban up in teams, whether it's in the offices or that we work in, or which we're not in now, I'm broadcasting from home and you are too, I imagine, but whether it's our work or whether it's our play or you know, the teams that we form uh, as families and so forth, as tribes, as friends, it's all embedded. It is, and, and no entity has done more research on this, on the, on the connection between bonding and how well we function as human beings and as performers than the military, right? We know that if you've ever talked to a soldier who's been in battle, and, and certainly there's study after study and books up, you know, and movies written about this, that once you're on that battlefield and you're under almost unbearable stress and pressure, and you still have to perform at your very, very best, what keeps you going is not God and country. That may have been why you signed up for the military. Once you're out there, it's, you know, your motivation is much closer at hand than that concept of God and country or for a sports team to win the World Series or the Super Bowl. John, how much it of this do you think is tied in with... Um... There was a great deal of uh, capital given to the idea of positive thinking. You remember back, perhaps, like I do, Norman Vincent Peale and all that. Uh, in fact, this is the religion, supposedly, uh, if you call it a religion, that uh, Donald Trump was at, at least inculcated in, that positive influence uh, on a team of people thinking positively as opposed to negativity um, really affects performance. That's in the science, too, isn't it, to some degree? Yeah, I think it is, and I think it's all of a piece. You know, I think if you're committed, like in the military, when you're on that battlefield, you know, you're playing for the guy next to you, you're, you're fighting for the guy next to you. And the same thing in any group that has great team chemistry, you know, your purpose becomes the team in itself. Well, if you're committed to each other, that negativity, you know, goes out the window, right? Because you are committed to... Um, sacrificing yourself, your, the selfless, selflessness that necessarily comes with being committed to the team itself. And that is that positivity, right? We believe that this group that we are working with right now, this just us, we're the ones who can accomplish this really difficult thing. And anybody who's been part of a team knows that there's just this singular pleasure of being part of a team that accomplishes something 
together with exact, exactly those people. And we're talking about team chemistry with author and journalist Joan Ryan. Her new book is called Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and the Soul of Team Chemistry. And if there's a hero in this book, uh, I think it's safe to say it's Mike Kruko, who uh, I've never met, but I think we're about to meet shortly here on the program. Uh, I was at a Giants game with Marty Lurie, and he took me back to the broadcast booth to meet the great Mike Kruko, and Mike Kruko was literally out to lunch, so I didn't get to meet him, but I'll <laughs> meet him momentarily. Uh, talk about how he figures in the book. Well, I dedicate the book to him. That's yeah. how much he figures in the book. And he is the person, frankly, and, and anybody who knows anything about Mike Kruko already knows, you know, what I'm about to say is that he embodies team chemistry. He is what I call in the book a super carrier of team chemistry. He's one of those people that can walk into any room and the energy just changes. And so while I was writing this book and slogging through, and you know, Michael, from writing your books, you know, there are times where you literally are just slogging through and like, why did I think this was a good idea? And I'd always just conjure an image of Mike Kruko. And it would remind me of what team chemistry is. And it just, just conjuring his image gave, gave me a lift. Well, Mike said this was one of the coolest things that ever happened to him, your book, that is. And Mike Kruko, of course, San Francisco Giants broadcaster, former professional baseball starting pitcher, and he's with us. Mike, great to have you. Well, thank you, Michael. This is uh, quite a privilege for me. Um, very fond of this woman. She uh, came into our lives in 1989, um, which was a very special year in San Francisco Giants baseball. For most of us, it was the first time we'd ever gone to the World Series. And... Uh, you know, it, it was great to see somebody as professional as her. Um, she was not the norm. I mean, at that time in 1989, it was still kind of a, a new frontier for women. And to see somebody come into our clubhouse that was comprised mainly of a bunch of old crusty ball players, And, uh, you know, she won us over. She won us over with her dedication and, and her sincerity. And and as we've gotten to know her throughout my life, you know, when she locks on to, to a theme, to a story, you know, she's a bird dog. She gets after it. And, um, and I was just so, I was so privileged to be part of, of her story when she wrote this book about something that I truly believe in. And, and I think most of us that, that play on team sports, um, we refer to chemistry all the time. And, and, and she proves it. She proves it. Plus, she gives us a whole new vernacular that we could describe it. Well, we're so both big admirers of Joan Ryan. That's that's abundantly clear. But let me talk to you about what you see as the reality, because there are the deniers. Joan and I were talking about people like Michael Lewis who say, no, it's not real. Why is it real to you, Mike Kruko? Well, when you have a team and, and you know, professional athletes, um, you know, there's, there's, there's 25 guys on a team. There's 25 stories that come into a clubhouse every spring and there is no chemistry that's, that has been forged and everybody comes in. There's different agendas. You've got rookies who have to prove themselves. You have uh, guys who are on their way out that are trying to hang on. They're trying to prove themselves. And basically everybody there has their own individualistic story. They have their own individual individualistic priorities. Some guys are playing out their options. Some guys are, 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 you know, playing uh, if simply for money. There's no real joy or passion in their game. They're playing for money. And yet there's other guys that would play for free. And they, everybody has a different story. And you may have you know, the, 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 the prognosticators that, that 
analyze and and value and evaluate your team, they may they may say you're you're the 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 favorite in your division. You should win this division. You should be one of the top four teams that get to the playoffs, and you have a chance to win the World Series. That story surrounds the clubhouse. Every component in that clubhouse, every player is not yet a part of that story. At some point in time in that year, everybody in that club has to buy into the fact that this is for the betterment of the team and not for the betterment of the player. And that is something that that happens, and it, and it happens at different times. Some guys buy into early. Some guys, it takes them late. But when they all come together, and all 25 of those guys come together, and the priority of that club is no longer self-centered, it's for the betterment of the guy next to you and everybody in that room, that's when you forge a blade that cuts through the league and gives you a chance. And that's, you know, we witnessed it. <coughs> excuse me. And <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> 2010, 12 and 14, the giants were always not, they, they were the least favored team in the, in the playoffs, but yet they won those championships because they forged a blade that was so strong and so sharp because of their commitment to one another that it was a chemistry that couldn't be beaten. So that's the importance of chemistry. That's the reality of chemistry. We've just never had anybody who's come along and taken the story and explained it scientifically, explained it uh, psychologically and emotionally or chemically until Jonah has written this book. So this is something I feel very passionate about, something that I've lived and, uh, and something that I'm very proud of. Yeah, I can hear it in your voice, and uh, certainly the passion comes across in the book too. We're coming up on a break, but I wanted to ask you and Joan both about the notorious uh, story that Joan takes up in her book, uh, The Hostility That Existed Between Barry Bonds and Jeff Kent, which is probably easily described as a toxic relationship, to put it mildly. I mean, Bonds grabbed Kent by the throat in the dugout, and many know this story, and yet uh, Joan comes to the conclusion that it was totally different on the field, and that was where the team chemistry existed. It was really a unique uh, relationship because the, both guys in the clubhouse were an island. You have a, a, a social life every day when teams gather. And, you know, there's, there's guys that you plug into for, for energy. There's guys that, uh, that, that complement the team, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's guys that you stay away from. There are certain guys who are speed bumps. And you just let them alone. They don't want to be part of it. Um, you know, we've had guys that uh, were rookies that, uh, you know, traditionally there's a little bit of a rookie hazing at the end of the year where we dress them up and we make them wear costumes and get on a plane, blah, 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 blah. Some guys don't want any part of it. They don't want any part of it. They're speed bumps. And yet you leave them alone. You leave them alone because they're just not into the social scene. However, if that person is professional, if he goes out there in that game and he busts his tail, and if he becomes a producer on that team, he becomes a guy that everybody looks to because of his professionalism. You don't have to be a great guy to be respected. Yeah, and the key is the basically. performance. I get it. And we're coming up on a break, Mike. I'm going to have to say goodbye to you, but I'm privileged to have you with us. And thank you so much for joining us. Uh, your passion for the book and for the topic comes through, and it's really great to have you. Thank you for being with us. That's Mike Kruko. My pleasure. Thank you. And uh, San Francisco Giants broadcaster, former professional baseball starting pitcher. And when we return, we'll hear from you and we'll hear more about how this applies to, well, work and family. And what about sports during the pandemic? You can join us at 866-733-6786. We're talking with Joan Ryan, all about team chemistry. Joan Ryan's an author and journalist, and her new book is called Intangibles, Unlocking 
the science and the soul of team chemistry. What's your experience with team chemistry, those of you listening? And what would you have to say about it on and off the field? Is it real to you? And in what sense is it real? You can give us a call now, and we certainly welcome your involvement in the program and joining the conversation toll-free. Join us at 866-733-6786. The number again for your calls, 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. Let me bring a caller on, Lori in Sacramento. Good morning. Welcome. Morning. Um, I've actually been thinking about this issue um, a lot recently, I started watching the Now or Never sports series, um, and I thought I would just learn something about rugby <laughs> and became really interested in the team dynamics and how important, you know, having good leadership is, but also, you know, people coming together for a common goal. And it reminded me a lot about doing theater while I was growing up, that there's a place for everyone how important support staff is in in getting you know people across the line and um, so I'm really interested to read this book. Well, thank you for the call and uh, I think a lot of interest has been stirred in this book. It was I, I must say more than interesting for me to read. It was actually in many ways revelatory on on so many levels. Let's talk a little bit about Joan how this applies to the workplace in your judgment and how it applies really to the situation we're in now with a pandemic where we can't. Uh, reach out and touch each other or players have to go out on the field either in a bubble or just trying to avoid contact altogether. Although we saw a rhubarb the other day, the Oakland A's. Uh, I don't know if that's team spirit or not, but when they came out of the dugout because uh, there was a shaving of, a, uh, of somebody at the batter's box. But your thoughts about this, how it applies to, for example, the workplace? Oh, yeah, the workplace. I do wonder, you know, I think when we're in crisis, and we all know that, you know, we're there's sort of a, an adrenaline uh, going through. We all you know, want to meet the moment, as Gavin Newsom keeps telling us. And so for the short term, we can do almost anything, right, in a crisis. But in the long term, having most of your workforce switching to their kitchen table um, to do their work by themselves I is not sustainable in my mind after all this research is just not sustainable. I mean, there are certain people who love working by themselves. That's great. But the great majority of us as you know, referring back to, you know, how our brains are just wired, you know, we're not made for isolation. We don't thrive in isolation. So I do think even though productivity, I guess the data shows that productivity actually went up slightly during the first few months of the pandemic. My my prediction would be that that will go down and it, it, it just can't sustain itself. And so I think that, um, you know, Zuckerberg and some of these other startups who are saying, you know, let's let's do this permanently, I think is a really, really bad idea. Well, in fact, uh, I mentioned earlier, you talked to psychiatrist Thomas Lewis, and uh, he said we need relationships. We need to synchronize with one another. That's all a part of his book on love. And uh, I mean, we need love too, but we also need that human contact. And we're not getting it in the sports world now. In fact, uh, people are feeling, I, I think uh, sports was a great outlet for so many people, outlet for aggression, quite frankly, uh, for many mm -hmm. people, and they're just not getting it. Well, the other thing about sports too, is that 
you know, we talk about tribes. Well, I think there's something like 40 million people, you know, adults in America who who live by themselves. And a lot of those people don't have family. They, you know, they don't have a tribe. And literally sports become their tribe. I mean, we see how people respond to sports. You know, they're wearing all the paraphernalia. They have rooms in their house dedicated to their sports team. You know, it just becomes, especially in baseball, it becomes this routine every evening. You know, Mike Kruko and Dwayne Kuyper and John Miller and Dave Fleming, you know, they they enter our living room. We spend the evening with them and we count on them being there for us. And it, And for people who don't follow sports, it sounds ridiculous, but it isn't. And that may be their only connection to something larger than themselves. And not having that, I think, is a real loss. And I think that with the pandemic is already wearing us down and then not having, you know, your tribe visiting you every evening, you know, just, just pushes you down even more. So I think it does have an impact and I'm glad, you know, in whatever form, I'm glad baseball is back for sure. And the NBA. And here's another caller joining us. Aaron, you're on the air. Good morning. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's a fascinating topic. Um, my comment has to do is in the you know realm of sports and lifelong involvement. I'm in my late 40s now, and particularly with basketball, which I played you know all the way up through college, um, you know, and, and into my young adulthood, and never really, you know, I did I enjoyed it enough to keep playing, but I never really you know, uh, internalized some of the lessons and the, the things that we're talking about here until I got into coaching as a young adult coaching CYO and middle school teams, and I've since become uh, a teacher as well. And I have to say that, that if I could suggest anything to anybody out there, regardless of your, you know, if you think sports are crazy or whatever, whatever role you're, you know, you play professionally, uh, the value of having some sense of accountability and responsibility to other people and knowing that it's not just you that you're showing up for and that you're setting a tone for and that you're putting in the work for, but it's the other people who are counting on you and looking to you. Uh, that's the most uplifting thing I've ever really uh, experienced. Aaron, that's very well expressed, and certainly it ties in with what we've been talking about, that uplift that you talk about that you get from other people and connectedness with other people. And Aaron also mentioned coaches here, Joan. I want to get your thoughts about, I mean, people say uh, often the managers, uh, and you focus on baseball, but the managers are the scapegoats when the team doesn't do that well or they get a lot of glory like Bruce Bochy deservedly did. Um, and we think about Steve Kerr, we think about so many of those who lead. Uh, that leadership really has a lot to do with the connectedness between the team players in ways that are sometimes not entirely visible. No, that, that is really true. And, and certainly the, the leadership of a manager or a coach sets the tone of the culture. So there's a foundation of a culture of this is the way we do things here. And that manager or coach um, exemplifies that, finds ways to enforce that, but, or I should say, and the leadership in the locker room is at least equally important, if not more important than that. And so you have to have a 
uh, a tribe of leaders in that clubhouse. Um, and I have my archetype characters that I, um, you know, that I name these seven archetypes that tend to manifest in a clubhouse. And they're leaders in their own, you know, weird way. They're not, they're not typical leaders, but they serve a real purpose in keeping that clubhouse close and keeping each other accountable and infusing energy. And a manager or a coach is not a part of the team. You know, they're not a member of the team. They're the leader of the team. So, so much has to happen just out on a battlefield among the players themselves. Can you give us those seven archetypes, Sean? Yes, those seven archetypes are the warrior, the sage, the kid, the buddy, the enforcer, the jester, and the spark plug. All we're thinking about, and uh, it covers a broad territory and a wide swath to be sure. And here's a question from a listener named Matthew who says, as a linguist, I'm struck by how important it is that individual stories are forged into a common myth, a containing story. Can purposeful storytelling support team chemistry or is it just something that happens spontaneously? I want to hear your answer to this, Joan, but immediately what comes to my mind is the story you tell in the book about uh, all of the negativity toward Candlestick and then suddenly Roger Craig and Al Rosen walked onto the scene and they said, uh, we're not even going to talk about this negativity anymore. They had a different story to tell. It does make a difference. They did. Yep, they did have a different storyteller to tell. And another example is about Johnny Gomes, this journeyman player <clears throat> who, like Kruko, is a super carrier. You know, not a great player, but every team <laughs> it seemed he played on, they won. And the story at the 2013 Boston Red Sox, where he landed in, in that year, and that team believed so much that Johnny Gomes helped them to play better when he was in the lineup out on the field, that when they're going into game four of the World Series down two games to one against the Cardinals, he's not in the lineup because he hasn't had a hit through the World Series and hardly any, you know, had done hardly anything through the entire postseason. Big Poppy and Dustin Pedroia and that that leadership, veteran leadership group in the clubhouse basically staged a mutiny on the manager, John Farrell at the time, and said, you have to change the lineup. And now the lineup had already gone out around the country, right? And he changed the lineup because they just believed so much that Johnny Gomes made them play better. And <laughs> sure enough, Sometimes these things are coincidence. Johnny Gomes hits a three-run homer in game four. They win that game and go on to win the World Series. Yeah, what was his batting average that year? It was below 200, wasn't it? Well, his, his career batting average is 242. And he was batting lower than that, um, certainly through the postseason. I don't know, you know, they call it below the Mendoza line. He was below 200. Let me bring another caller aboard and remind you that you can join us in this conversation by dialing in at 866-733-6786. That's again, 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email anything you want to say or ask to forum at kqed.org. Here's Dennis in Pleasanton. Dennis, good morning. Welcome. Hi, Joan, Michael. Thank you. This is a great, great story. I'm going to buy the book. I absolutely believe in this. I'm a music teacher and a sports person. I've coached teams that didn't have great players, but they had incredible chemistry of won championships. I, uh, my, my jazz band is a competitive band, and I have, I've had groups, I, I call them Ferraris with a bad engine. Great players, <laughs> but didn't know how to work together. 
And then I've had great kids that weren't all no superstars, but they were all great, phenomenal players. And, and, I, and I absolutely believe in this. And, and my thing is the Yankees. You know, the Yankees always had bought these teams, bought these teams, bought these teams, and they would never win. And then all of a sudden, they had the core four, and these guys got along, and they worked hard, and they won. And, and what happened with the Giants, I absolutely believe in this. I think it's, it's great, Joe, and thanks so much for doing this. Thanks so much for the call, Dennis. Good to hear from you. And I'm wondering something else here. Uh, as I think about Giants history, there was a team uh, that was made up of a lot of born-agains, uh, you may recall. I'm sure you do, Joan. Uh, and, and you kind of uh, earlier said faith may not have anything to do with it. But I'm wondering, when we think about team spirit, when we think about people who feel that maybe the Lord is on their side, or at least their praying is going to help them, uh, or whatever, that must be a factor in all this, isn't it? I'm not sure about that, Michael. I mean, I think anytime you believe you're going to win, that certainly helps. But I think it helps you as an individual. And that 1989 team was, you know, one of the teams that, you know, had this whole squad, what we call the God Squatters. That was one of the, you know, real born again. And Dave Drabecki was the leader of that group. And thank goodness it was Dave Drabecki because he made sure that the God squatters, you know, weren't standing in judgment of the carousers <laughs> um, and, and the, the guys who were just a little bit lunatic fringe. And he said, look, yeah, these guys have your back. They're going to play hard for you out there and you're going to do the same. And that's all that matters as a team. And he made a huge difference on that 89 team because it could have been a very fractured team otherwise. It was the God Squad, though. You're right. Uh, I'm also struck in your book by how you write about, well, you write personally about your parents. Uh, when your mother passed away, your father, that was called, they call it failure to thrive. You know, uh, it didn't take him that long to also pass on. And to a great extent, you're suggesting, again, this need of a kind of symbiotic mutual dependence that we have upon one another, whether it's in a relationship on the field or a relationship at home or, and, and so forth. I mean, the right. sense is here that there's mutual dependency that's part of the necessity of what you call team spirit and the uplift that comes from it. Right, and, and it goes to that this is a physiological construct, team, team chemistry. It's not just psychological, it is physiological and, and in the midst of researching this, that's when my mother died suddenly. And then nine months later, you know, my father hadn't been sick, you know, he was close to 80 and, you know, you know, obviously not in the, you know, the, the height of his, his, uh, you know, physicality, but, you know, he was buried, you know, we buried him nine months later and it, and it, what it recalled for me, you know, cause I thought, wow, that's amazing that, you know, my mother could have so much, um, profound influence on his very being that he literally couldn't live without her. And, you know, Michael, I know, you know, you know, we learned this in biology, you know, those orphanages back at the turn of the last century, you know, these quote, sterile orphanages where they stopped touching the babies and cooing over the babies to stay away from them to prevent disease. And suddenly mortality rates were up to 75%. And what they discovered is what we know very well now is that, you know, babies, none of us, but babies especially, cannot, they literally cannot survive. Their brains do not develop without connection with other human beings. 
And mm-hmm. that really said, that taught me so much, changed really how I thought about team chemistry. Yeah, there's a, a question here from Wendy who says, can you mention please the chemicals that are responsible for, quote, chemistry. There's research on improving our chemistry through activities that promote the body's production of oxytocin, which acts as an antidote to stress. And I mentioned at the beginning that you do indeed write about oxytocin. You want to say something about that? Yeah, for sure. And that goes back to what we were talking about before. I mean, it goes back to a lot of things, but, you know, how physical these guys are with each other and, you know, and and women. And I say guys, and and I just want people to know that there are women in my book, too. You know, I have a whole chapter about the 96 Olympic uh, basketball team that, you know, is still the best basketball team that's ever been on the planet. Um, So when I say guys, I mean men and women. But um, you know, that their athletes do tend to be very physical with each other. And when I read about oxytocin and how, you know, one of the ways oxytocin is released in the brain and into the blood bloodstream, which, which fosters this feeling of bonding and even love, um, it, it's what courses through us when we do fall in love and, and when women, you know, go through labor and give birth, that touch also triggers the release of oxytocin. And when I read that, I was like, oh, aha. That was <laughs> Without, an epiphany when, moment, right? It was. They, don't, they didn't know why they were so physical with each other, but <laughs> it, it really just kept, you know, kept feeding this oxytocin being released, which helps with the bonding. And here's Allie joining us from Santa Rosa. Allie, welcome. Thanks for waiting. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much. Um, my comment was in regards to not actually sports, but uh, restaurants. Um, I have been fortunate enough through my 30-some-odd years of uh, restaurant work to work at some real special places. Um, and it was, uh, it's funny that you bring up oxytocin because you get that same sort of release when you have such a good team and you're busy and you're working and there's a goal at the end and you know we'd have competitions on like who can sell the most glasses of rosé and we'd break into teams and there'd be a prize at the end and you know I've I've been you know it's physical I've formed lifelong friendships with people through the restaurant teamwork um that I've had the fortune to work at for many, many, many years. <laughs> well, Allie, it's good of you to share that with us, and I thank you for that. I appreciate your calling in. I want to get another caller about here, and we'll go to Sacramento and welcome Warren. Warren, good morning. Hi. Yeah, Hi. good morning. Um, I was telling your, your screener that um, it's been 50 years, but I worked with this incredibly nice gentleman who was a retired Air Force officer, and he'd been part of a bomber crew over Europe in the Second World War. And I looked at him and I said, you were just a kid. How did you get through it? And he said, we had one another. He said, we had one another, and death didn't make any difference at all, just because we had one another. If we went down, we're going to go down together. And he said, it got me through. It set up an archetype in my head that I've held for 50 years, and I've never achieved that level of resonance, but... I've always understood the emotion that he experienced when he articulated that statement for me. That's touching to hear you say and tell us about it. Thank you, Warren, for that call. Appreciate it. And uh, here's Larry, who it's an interesting email. Joan, he says, have you thought of compiling a fantasy team of Hall of Famers that have such bad chemistry that they would be beat by a team with lesser talent? 
Every list I compile has Ty Cobb playing center field. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's really funny. Well, the interesting thing is, you know, we talk about, you know, an earlier caller mentioned the Yankees and the core four, and, you know, that was the best. And, the, you know, the Giants had their core four in the bullpen. Um, that the Yankees back in the 70s and the A's too, you know, had those teams where they had had a fist fight before the afternoon was over, yet on the field, they were amazing. And, you know, I started to talk about this earlier that they had task chemistry. So you can have the worst human beings like a Ty Cobb. You could have, you know, nine Ty Cobbs out on the field. But if they trusted each, trust is such a foundation of every relationship, right? If they trusted each other on the field, they had each other's back, they knew they knew the other guy next to them was working as hard as he was, wanted to win as much as he was. Um, that was all they needed was this great task chemistry. And that's why when people say, well, obviously you don't need chemistry because look at those 80s, you know, those 70s Yankees and A's. No, they did have chemistry. It's not just not the chemistry that we think of when we think of chemistry. Well, you also write about this uh, and this kind of chemical uh, notion of, uh, of contagion, for lack of a better word. Uh, you write about, for example, Buster Posey, the great Buster Posey, uh, telling a rookie that he did a really good job with a ground ball and then, uh, or a throw, and then another rookie observing this, and uh, it's contagious. <laughs> he feels something as a result of that. He might feel envy, too, perhaps, <laughs> Buster Posey. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but... You know, it's an interesting example of what can go on in terms of what you call contagion. Oh, it is. And it's those mirror neurons, right? They discovered this, I mean, just in the last last century that we have these mirror neurons. And this is why, and, you know, notice this next when you're in conversation with people, especially people that you're, you know, fairly close with. We mimic each other. You know, we mimic a tilt of the head. We mimic their facial expression. We mimic their their body language. And we do that in order to actually understand what they're feeling. Like we think it's like they're feeling something and then they, you know, we do that. We're, we're mimicking the feeling. No, we're mimicking their body, which then sends the signal to our brain that this is what they're feeling, right? So when, you know, this kid across the clubhouse is watching this Buster Posey interaction, his mirror neurons are firing in ex exactly the same way as if Buster Posey had his arm around him and was telling him that you're the guy we need right now. It's the same part of his brain that is firing. And I thought, okay, that's how this spreads for all of us. But especially, I mean, think about a closed locker room. You know, all of these things are happening and it's spreading from person to person if that's what's happening, that you have the Buster Posey. Now, if you have negativity, guess what? That spreads. And we'll bring another caller on with us. Uh, let's have Jim and Livermore join us. Jim, thanks for waiting. You're on. Oh, thanks. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I was telling the screener, I'm a absolutely lifelong uh, Giants fan. My first game was when I was four years old at Seal Stadium. <laughs> and I, I still look at that block 16th and Bryant with, you know, reverence. Uh, and I, I just love Mike Kruko. I've had a, a number of interactions with him, uh, later on in my life when I had seats behind the dugout. Uh, I remember one time I had an old baseball cap with an orange bill giants and it was my softball hat. And he looked at me and he said, that is the ugliest hat I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> 
and I took it off and threw it to him. And he put it on and he, you know, danced around with my hat. And then he signed Mike Kruko right across the bill. And I kept that hat forever. You know, I mean, it was just such a touching moment. And, and you've it, kept that story forever. That's quite a story, actually. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Joan calls Mike Kruko the, the ringleader, the, the raconteur and the drum master. What is it? The drum mother of the Giants? Den mother. Den mother, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking drum master and den mother. They kind of got co <laughs> collated there. Uh, yeah, it was great to have him on, and, and certainly it was great to have you with us this hour, too. Let's have another caller, though. Dorian joins us from Portola Valley. Dorian, welcome. Good morning. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I've played softball for over 40 years with the same coach and the same team. And um, the magic of, of this team, I can't even express it. And uh, the thing is, the coach's name is Mike, so there must be something special about the Mikes because I love Mike Kruko, too. <laughs> and um, we play locally, and we've traveled all over the United States uh, with tournaments. And there's no competition. We're always just rooting for one another and wanting to do the best for our coach and our team. And there's, there's never that feeling of, of anyone wanting anything but the best for one another. And I think with all the traveling and the laughter that we have, that really makes a big difference, too. That really creates such a bond. And we even have a dance and a theme song for our coach. And um, one time we were in a tournament in Reno, and as I said, we've played for a long, long time. And so the opposing team was quite young and quite talented and quite fit. And one of them walked by me and said, ah, no problem. They're just a bunch of old housewives. Well, we proceeded to beat them very badly, and it was, um, it, was, it was a wonderful experience, and it's amazing to listen to what your book is about, and I cannot wait to read it. Yeah, good for you. It reminds me, Joan, uh, a number of years ago, there was a, um, a, an all-star team of a lot of Hollywood types. I remember one of the members of the Monkees was on the team, and uh, somebody from daytime television, and we just had to get a bunch of people together, a bunch of locals, Will Durst and Michael Pritchard and people who really uh, had never practiced or played baseball at all together and uh, somehow we whipped them um, and it was a good feeling uh, it was sort of dovetailing on that last call and here's actually a question from tim that's apropos he says what's the role that rah-rah players like brian wilson uh, aubrey huff hunter pence and pablo sandoval play for success on the field oh they definitely have a role and that's the spark plug of my archetype Hunter Pence, you know, was huge in, in 2012 and 2014 and, and Pablo too. And, you know, they can't do it every day. You know, that can get grating and annoying, actually. But the spark plug is that perfectly timed, okay, guys, you know, we can do this together. And they're so genuinely, such genuine believers and have such passion that you can't help but get pulled in to that, just this maelstrom of, of positive energy and, and passion and belief. I'm gonna give and out some so of that right now because I have to say goodbye to you, but uh, okay. you, are, you are a super carrier among journalists and uh, it's really been a pleasure to be with you and Mike Kruko this hour and congratulations on the book. Thank you for being with us. Thanks, Michael. This was really fun. I so appreciate it. That's Joan Ryan. Her book is called Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and the Soul of Team Chemistry. Let's talk about the great forum team because it is a great team. Forum is produced by Judy Campbell, Tina Lauerberg, Ariana Prell, Blanca Torres, Susan Britton, and Raquel Maria Dillon. Senior editor is Dan Zolp. Engineer is Brandani Bringer. Our intern is Jameson Weiss. Our executive editor is Ethan Tovin Lindsay. Chief content officer is Holly Kernan. Thank you for being a part of the program. Stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. 
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.